Jesus Christ worthy of stoning or worthy of believing? The question seems rather irrelevant, doesn't it, in a sense? Because few, first of all, few, very few, if any, are being stoned today. So the concept of stoning someone seems a little irrelevant to our society. Further, in our advanced, quote-unquote, society today, there are just so many religions that to have a religion going on or a religious leader around does not seem like anything spectacular. It is also a situation where when it comes to Christianity, it comes to the things of God, comes to the things of Jesus Christ, it frequently in our advanced society today is stated that it is for those who need it and for those who need a crutch to lean on. And for many, the concept of religion or even the concept of Jesus Christ, especially the teachings of Christ and Christ being the only way, is thought of as something that just can be ignored and does not affect their life. However, in reality, you cannot ignore the life of Jesus Christ. Why is that so? Well, first of all, let me mention to you that he is a historical person, and we will see that in our text this morning again. Just the very fact that he's a historical person and his life, whether we agree with it or not, has affected all of our lives, though there are even changes in the way people look at the calendar, but the concept of A.D. and B.C. have been related to Christ. And I'm well aware that a lot of people do not like to talk in those terms anymore and have changed even that. But his life does affect us. His teachings and his claims that he taught while he was here on earth are profound by anybody's measure. They were authoritative as recognized by those who were in authority and those who were not in authority, that he spoke as a man of authority. And certainly, what he spoke had eternal consequences to what he said. Also, his works, which again appears in our text this morning, because of the works that he performed, which, by the way, were done publicly. They were not done hidden. They were not on certain time schedules, that is, by media or anything of that nature. God's time schedule, yes. But the works were public. They were in various settings so that many different types of people could see what had happened. They were miraculous by every sense of the word. Though, again, today, in our sophisticated and advanced society, there is a press to deny the miracles of the Bible. They were miraculous, and people witnessed them. Further, they are recorded. They are recorded in a document which we are looking at today. They have been recorded in time, as other historical events have been throughout the world and are contained in libraries throughout the world. So, too, the teachings and the works of this individual have been recorded and have their lasting effect. So today, 
you will see again from this text, people may think that they can ignore Jesus Christ, but no one can. You are forced one way or the other to come to some conclusions about this individual. In our context this morning, as we have been progressing through chapter 10, at this stage, the tensions are very high. Why? Well, put into context where we are for a second, and we realize when we talk about the Scriptures, we talk about the law, when we talk about the Word of God, there has been no prophets until John the Baptist on the scene for about 400 years, very similar to what we have today, a period of silence in the sense of prophets being on the scene, though there are some who would claim to that today. There had been a gap of about 400 years where the scriptures were silenced and prophets were not there. Religious activity was continuing to be carried on much like it is today, routinely, habitually, as something that you just grew up and that's what you do on Sundays. Or if you've been in a Christian home, that is what you do. That was also true in the time of Christ and in the time of this text. Because if you remember, he is in the temple setting here. And people are going about their business with all their religious activities, and in their midst is the Messiah. But they're just busy about their religious activity. And didn't even recognize who was there. They haven't had any revelation for a period of time. So when you put it in its context even that much, Israel and these leaders and the people are still looking for, which is still true today, those who haven't come to Christ, still looking for the Messiah, still looking for that promised one. Now, as we've been expounding our text, we realize that why were they looking for a Messiah? So I'm not going to go back into all of that this morning. But they're still looking for their Messiah. And now Jesus is on the scene. Now let's put it in a little bit more of historical context for us because it's what can happen to us again today. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we kind of celebrate that at Christmas time, but the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was announced over 30 years ago. By the time this scene comes on, you see, they haven't heard any new revelation. They're about their religious activities, and there was that great angelic announcement about the coming Messiah and now it's been 30 years that have passed. Have any of you been saved 30 years? Don't raise your hand. I've been saved for quite a while, and all of a sudden, time goes by. And all of those little things that were so important, and they're vital. Time's gone by. They haven't had deliverance from Rome since you've become a Christian. The Lord hasn't come back yet. The world hasn't gotten better. Well, that's what they're facing with this situation. This announcement of the birth of the Messiah has come, and now it's 30 years later, and Rome's still in power. The religious leaders are not announcing any arrival of the Messiah. In fact, they're saying if anyone claims to be the Messiah, throw him out of the synagogue. That's been our context. The teachings of Jesus Christ have stirred everybody up. They've been authoritative. They've come. They've witnessed his teaching. They've witnessed his miracles. They've been obvious. They've been undeniable even by the religious leaders. So the tension is building. And as much as I, I need to remind you, we're only in chapter 10, but we're at the end of his public ministry. 
all of this has been going on, and this is going to very fast move toward his crucifixion after this scene today. His following is growing, and so there's all types of confusion. Miracles have happened. His teaching is there. It's passed since the time of his announcement of his birth. The religious leaders aren't accepting him. There's been no change. People are routinely going about their religious activity, and many do not want to believe in this person that has come. And the timing, as we well know, according to verse 22, is the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, as it's still celebrated today. And in the midst of that, with all of that tension going on, people wanting to hear that a Messiah is coming, but they don't see any evidence of it, at least from their perspective, the Lord, the Lord has given them a lot of evidence. Jesus comes into the scene, and you've got his claim in verse 30, which is now bringing us to our outline. In verse 30, he claims, which is what we ended up with last week, I and the Father are one. Now, that couldn't be any clearer. That's his claim. This is not saying, as I closed last week, that they are the same person. He's not violating the context of John 1.1, where you see the, the picture of the Father and the picture of the Son. They are both persons, but they are one in essence. They are one in absolute unity. They are one in our context of even taking care of and protecting the sheep and concern for them. And you cannot escape the fact of the reality, though people still try to do it in 2010, that verse 30 is a clear, in my personal opinion, a clear indication of his deity. That's what he's claiming. He's claiming deity in verse 30. Some say, still today, and I just heard it again this past week, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. What book are you looking at? In verse 30, he clearly claims, I and the Father are one. Some say, and that is Jehovah Witnesses, by the way, to claim that Jesus Christ is God is wrong. And they will go on that and say that he never claimed to be God and there is no deity with Christ. I'm going to tell you that Christ many times claimed to be God. We have seen it in this gospel alone in the I am statements. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd in our immediate context. How much more evidence do you need that Jesus Christ claimed to be God? But if that's not enough for you this morning, to look at that and say, you know, maybe the structure of the Greek language here, or maybe the way it is, because there's a neuter that's used here, and maybe it's, you know, I know a little bit more than Pastor Dan, and maybe that just is not what he's claiming. The immediate context tells you that's what he's claiming. How do you know that? Let's look at it. Let's look at the reaction of the Jews. Verses 31 through 33. His claim is he and the Father are one, very clearly. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work, we do not stone you. Now watch this, but for blasphemy. Well, explain what you mean by blasphemy, okay? And because you, being a man, watch, make yourself out 
to be, and that word to be is not there, out to be God. They got it. They understood verse 30 very clearly. He was worthy of death. They picked up stones. And by the way, sometimes our English does not convey really what the Greek's bringing out here. When you pick up stones, I pick up stones every day. Now, I'm not talking about the stones in my head. All right? Be only because I, I try to jog. And I don't do that every day. That's not a proper statement. About five days a week, I try to get out and do a little jogging. You know why I pick up stones? For dogs. I don't like them attacking me while I'm jogging. And so, beware dogs. I have stones. Okay? And I'll throw them. But the point I'm getting at, those are little stones. That is not the word that's used here. It literally says they were carrying stones. And when they're near the temple area, from the reading I did, there would have been larger stones around that. And they, they didn't, because when they picked up a stone, it wasn't to hit a dog to knock them out and move them out of the way. It was to kill. They were there to crush the body and to kill them. And so, it's interesting, they're picking up stones or carrying stones. Why? Again, because they're interested in killing him. Jesus says, for which good, or beautiful is the word there, what beautiful work. And by the way, notice he did many. That's what it says, doesn't it? Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works. What do you mean? He changed the water to wine, didn't he? Just think of a couple that we've seen. He fed 5,000. He walked on the water. They've seen these things. It's been evident. He healed the man born blind. That's the immediate context that we just came out of in chapter 9. So he's saying, for which of these? Because I walked on water, you're going to stone me. Because I changed, if you will, uh, uh, water to wine. Because I fed 5,000? Oh, maybe it's because someone that was born blind, I healed them. Is that why you're going to stone me? These beautiful works that have demonstrated? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Their answer in verse 33, it's not because of good works. It is because of blasphemy, which I will get back to in just a moment. Well, what I want you to see here in their response, first of all, it says this, that you being a man, let me just spend a moment or so on that. People still today say that Jesus Christ was not a man. I don't know how in the world they say that. He's a historical character that lived in this world. And folks, you need to realize that he was real. He is not a myth. Jesus Christ is not a myth. He was not a spirit being in the sense of a vision that people just saw. No, he was a real man, and they knew it. He was one that ate and drank, just like you and I do. He was one that had compassion. He was one that felt pain. He was one that cried. A spirit that's floating around doesn't do that but is a real man. And this is very important because you need to see that Jesus Christ, why is he unique? Because he was fully man and fully God. No one else was that. Fully man. If you need texts for yourself, I won't turn them. John chapter 1 that we saw in the beginning. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. In Philippians chapter 2, well-known passage. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he laid it aside. And he took on flesh and became a servant, even to the death of the cross. A real man can die a death. Someone that's not real cannot. 
Hebrews chapter 2 for your own reference. In that passage, beginning in verse 10 and then carrying on, it says that he took upon himself flesh and blood because it was not common to him, but he took it upon himself. So when they say in their response that you being a man, that's a very important statement. And we need to realize that Jesus Christ was a man just like you and I. That is why we have the encouragement in Hebrews. He experienced everything that we experience except that he did it without sin. That's the difference. That's why, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can go to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. You have to be honest with yourself. Me too. Sometimes when I pray, I feel like God is so far away. Don't you sometimes? And I wonder where he is. And is he really then? Can he really experience? Jesus Christ was a man. He wept. He felt pain. He felt discouragement. He felt depression. You say, really? Yes, he did. Just look at the garden. When he prayed to his father, he felt those things. That's why we can go and it says he understands. And we have a great high priest that can understand those things. He was fully a man. But he also claimed deity. And they saw that. It says, make yourself out to be God. Now, he didn't have to really make himself out to be God. What they're referring to is verse 30. What they're referring to is all the context of chapter 10 that we've looked at. They understood that he was saying he is God. This is now the third time in John's epistle. So I want you to get this. Did he ever claim to be God? This is the third time in this epistle that the Jews got it clear. I want you to see it quickly. Go with me to John chapter 5. The first two are just a review for a second. In John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. But he answered them, My Father, not just God the Father, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Well, he didn't claim to be God. Yes, he did. Well, how do you know? Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more watch to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, watch, but he also was calling God his own father, not just God as father, but his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews got it. If you read some commentaries today, they'll say the Jews missed it. They misinterpreted. They knew exactly what he said. They had no problem with understanding Christ's claim to deity. And they were going to stone him for it. Go with me to John chapter 8. That was the second place we saw it in this epistle. So he claimed God was his own father in chapter 5. In chapter 8, he claimed that he was eternal. Look at verses 58 and 59. I referred to them during communion. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego, me. I am that I am is what he's saying. They knew it. Did they know it? Yes. Verse 39. Uh, 59, excuse me. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were about to kill him again. Why? Claim to deity. And now you've got it back in our text. And for the third time in John chapter 10, in verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. One in essence. They knew to claim to be the Son of God 
not simply a son of God, but the son of God meant that he was claiming to be God and they got it. So in spite of what anybody might say to you today about Jesus never claiming to be God, he claimed it over and over again and the Jews understood it. That's why they wanted to kill him. And what they charged him with was blasphemy. And it's explained to you there because the blasphemy was him being a man, which they recognized was claiming to be God. They they could not ignore him. That's why I come back to that. People want to ignore Jesus Christ. They couldn't do it. They were not going to believe on him. Go back to chapter 10, just in verse 20. Just look at that for a second. Remember this? Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? You see, they couldn't ignore him. His speaking was authoritative. His miracles were obvious. And so either you've got to come to the conclusion that he's committing blasphemy because he said he was God, or he's insane, and certainly he wasn't by, obviously, the thinking and the authority by which he spoke, or that he was demon-possessed. Demon-possessed people don't do what Jesus Christ did. Those aren't conclusions of a thinking person. But it's all here. You can ignore Jesus Christ if you want to try to, but you really can't. You cannot stay neutral, even today. You, If he claims to be God, you've got to go out of this room saying, either Jesus Christ was such a phony and such a demon-possessed, an insane man, or something wrong with him, or he truly was who he said he was. you got to do one or the other. There's too many in this world that are walking around and saying, Jesus Christ was a good man. Jesus Christ was a good leader, a moral man, and that's all that he was. Those are not people that are reading their Bibles. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis that said that. No one, you can't come to that conclusion that he was just a good moral man. You've either got to say the guy was insane, or you've got to say that he is who he said he is. And the same is true with you and me today. If you're saying that he's just a moral man or a good religious leader, you haven't read the book. You don't understand the depth of what he claimed. He is either God, very God, and he is, or you have no Savior. And if not, you won't believe on him. And that's what they came to. His challenge to them in verses 38 to 30, 34 to 38 is this. Notice he appeals to the Bible. Jesus in verse 34 says, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written? Folks, that's your best defense. We had graduation and a couple of the students talked about the subject of apologetics and that, that, that was what I had the privilege of teaching them and so forth because I wanted them to be able to defend their faith. Okay? And notice the best defense is to know what the Word of God says. So when they're arguing, you're being, you're, you're just a man and you're saying you're God, he goes right back to what the scriptures. And we need to do that. We need to appeal to the Bible. He says, it is written. It is written is what? God's revealed truth. That's what we have. People have talked about this book just being the book of man. No, if God didn't record his word for us, which any one of intellect would do. That's what our whole society has done. Some of it started with drawing pictures, if you will, because they wanted other generations to know. Doesn't it even make common sense to a thinking person that if God is really God 
And if he did create man, that he would want to communicate by the means which man can understand who he is? Of course. We have the Word of God. It's recorded. And that's right what God goes back to here. He goes right says it's written in your law. Now, in this case, I don't think he's referring to just the first five books, but to the entire Old Testament, because that's what they had. And then he quotes from Psalm 82, which is why I had you read that responsibly this morning. Psalm 82, 6 is where he quotes from. And he says, in that law, I said, you are gods. And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. That is powerful. We could say a lot about that. Let me just pass on a couple of things. The importance of one single word. Did you get that? Or did that just shoot right over your head? People sometimes say, this is the word of God. My my Bible students, for example, didn't like, I don't think, the end of the year because they said when you get a Bible verse, if you miss one word, you get a zero. Nobody wants to come into my class now. Okay? But that's what I said. I built it up so that by the end of the year. Why? Because I wanted them to see that every word of God is important. And this passage brings it out. He says he, he holds this whole statement on one word that was used in Psalm 82. And it's the word God. And he said, didn't I call you gods? One word. And he's showing it is written, you see. And then he says, it cannot be broken. Why? It's, it's reiterating Matthew chapter 5. Not, he, Christ came to fulfill the law, not to break the law, and not one jot nor tittle will not come to pass. It will all be fulfilled. Every single bit. That is why we talk about inspiration in the Word of God, and we talk about this book being a book that every single word was inspired. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jesus Christ demonstrates that to us right here. The absolute authority of the inspiration of the Word of God is brought out. Though it's secondary to the text, it, it, what we're talking about this morning, it is very important. And he goes to that word. Now the question is, why call them gods? And who is it that they call, that he was calling gods, by the way, there? Because he says, if he called them gods, why do that? Well, there's only, I believe, two reasonable explanations to it. And by the way, he doesn't say who he's calling gods. If you read the context of Psalm 82, which we read this morning, it is referring to the judges there. And why would he call them gods? Romans 13 brings it out. Because in the Old Testament, the judges were just like what we read in Romans 13. What does he say? They are ministers of God. I have the privilege, and I really mean this, I have the privilege of several times a year going into the town of Methuen and opening up the council meetings in prayer. Now, there's a lot of other people that go up and pray there in the town and whatever, but I count it a privilege because I know in my heart that God has allowed them to be the leaders and the ministers. And I want you to know, I think Pastor Chris was there with me the last time, and that is how I opened in prayer. I reminded them that they were ministers of God, that God was allowing them to officiate on behalf of the residents of Methuen. And I prayed that as they exercised the agenda, they would do it in a way that was honorable and representative of their responsibility. They still invited me back. I'll be back again. 
They did. And what I'm saying, I don't preach the whole gospel to them. That's not my intent. But I want them to understand because I believe it in my heart. These elected officials, our president, whether you agree with them or you don't agree with them, our senators, those are in positions of authority and they're ministers of God. So it may be in that sense that he's reminding them. And when you look at the psalm, that's really what he's doing in Psalm 82. The judges were ministers of God. And so we referred to them as God. They were the spokesmen for God. That may be. The second possibility, before you throw it out, is that he's referring to the nation of Israel in our immediate context. Now, why would I say that? Because if you look at the immediate context, he says this. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. That's our immediate context. The word of God did not come to the judges, per se. It came to them as a nation, and it refers to the law back in verse 34. So to me, the most two reasonable explanations, it's either the judges or he's referring to them as a nation. But get this part. His appeal is to this. He said, why are you offended if I'm basically calling myself God because the scriptures can't be broken? And then he says this. He appeals to the fact that he took it from the judges or the nation of Israel to the fact of who the greater person is, and that is the one sent of God. And we find that in verse 36. He says, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Who is that? Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. He's the one that has been sanctified. The one that has been set apart. Why do you mean, what do you mean set apart? Think of what we've talked about this morning. The only God man. Fully God, fully man. We are fully human, okay? But we are not fully God. And God is God. But because God is the only Savior, and because no one could save themselves, there is none righteous, no, not one. Because there is no one who through their own human effort or through any religion can get to God on their own. God sent his son. God in the flesh. With the purpose of doing all of the will of God, which included going to the cross, which we just celebrated. That is the power of the cross. That's why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. If you have come to Christ, it's because God, you worked the gospel in your heart. And you recognize that Jesus Christ is the sanctified one. He is the Messiah. He is the one, notice this, sent into the world. He was sent by God the Father. We saw that John 3.16 so often claimed. Why? Because he's the Lamb of God. So his appeal is to, first of all, that God sent him, and then his appeal in verses 37 and 38 is, if you're not going to believe me, believe the works that I have done. So that you might understand, basically, what John proclaimed, that this is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So the tensions are mounting, and they're ready to stone him, and right in the midst, they recognize he's claiming to be God, and he says, I am the one sent. I am the one sanctified. And if you won't believe me, look at the evidence around you. And let me challenge the audience right here. There may be some in this audience that have not believed on Christ. You're not sure whether he's anything more than a religious leader or a good moral man. Take the challenge that Jesus Christ says here. 
If you're not going to believe it, believe the works. Well, how do I learn the works? Never mind reading what everybody else says about the Bible. Here's my challenge to you. If you're here without Christ, take the Bible and read it for yourself. Read it for yourself, looking at the Bible and saying to God, honestly, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is who you say he is. And read the book. Because God will reveal himself to you. And God will show you that it's evidence and it's proof. Isn't it amazing the stubbornness of man as I wrap it up? In verse 39, did they listen to him? They knew that he was claiming to be Christ. You see, they couldn't be indifferent. They couldn't. Because they either had to agree with him and believe on him, or ignore him and what? Charge him with blasphemy and want to kill him. And it's the same with you. You can't just ignore Jesus Christ. You're either going to believe on him or you're going to be stubborn and you won't. I love verse 39 for this reason. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him. That's not the reason I love it. I love the last part of it. And he eluded them. How did he elude? He eluded their grasp. It's unfortunate that the New American Standard uses the word grasp there, and I'll tell you why. It's the same exact word that we just studied last week in verse 29. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. That we discovered in verse 28 and 27 that God said that no one can snatch us out of the Son's hand. It's the same word, hand. And I want you to get the picture. He just taught them that when you belong to God, now get this, and I'm going to give you the application. No one can take you out of my hand. And no one can take you out of the Father's hand. And then they try to take him in their hands. Remember what we said last week? When you're in God's hands, you're in the greatest hands you could be in. And because Jesus Christ is God, and he was also held in the Father's hand, not even them in trying to grasp them with their own hands could pull him away. Because why? Because God the Father was protecting him and he is God the Son and no one takes his plan away from him. And that is also true by application with us again. People may hate us. They may hate your testimony. They may persecute you. This is application here. They may come after you. But listen. When you are in the hands of God and you've trusted in Christ, you're in the greatest hands of the world. And though they seek to snatch you and seize you, they can never take you out of the Father's hand. And while many do not believe, I'll have to summarize verses 40 to 42. My time is gone. I want you to get this. In 40 to 42, Jesus left them. And this was really the end of his public ministry. As far as he'll come back for the raising of Lazarus and so forth. But he's going to start to move toward the cross. But he leaves them with all the evidence they had. With all of the teaching that he gave them and they refuse to believe. And that is dangerous. Why? You and I, listen, in the 21st century, have more evidence, have more revelation than Abraham, Moses, David, the disciples in the Gospel accounts. And there are so few following this book. 
There are so few who will believe it. They want to believe it for salvation, but that's as far as they'll go. No wonder in the end of the account in Matthew, Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who witnessed what they saw and for what they were accountable for. Let me give you an application here. It is going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, I personally believe, than for those who have the Word of God in its entirety on computers and available to them and are choosing not to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all the evidence that they have. But wake up, Christian, because all that we have, and if you've trusted in Christ, we are going to still stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. And you and I are being held accountable for this book. And it is being ignored by Christians today. They're only putting it when they want it. They don't even want to read it, let alone follow it. It's interesting because he crosses the river. And you know what happens? The ones who had the less evidence turn around and say, he does meet the standard that John the Baptist said. And notice the words, many believe. It wasn't the ones that were religious. It wasn't the ones that had all the evidence. Because Jesus Christ proclaimed it to them, showed it to them, and they just went along in their lives and did what they wanted anyway and refused to believe. It was those who saw the simple truth because God opened their eyes. Didn't even have all that revelation. Even what John had told them. And they followed the Messiah. Where are you today? You can't ignore Jesus Christ. He's either a blasphemer or he's the one you need to believe in. I trust that you believed on him. Well then follow him. Because you've been purchased. Let's close in prayer. Father in God, I thank you and praise you. I know there's been much today with the communion. And we thank you and praise you for the word of God. I thank you for the teachings of Jesus Christ. That he and you are one. I thank you that the Jews, though they refused to believe it, they understood it. And still today in our society, there are those who refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man can come unto the Father but by Him. And yet, Father, You are still proclaiming the Gospel through the Word of God. And while there are still some who refuse and look at Jesus Christ as a blasphemous person, there are those who will humble themselves, realize that they are sinners, and need to trust in Christ. And I thank You that in this audience, there are many who have trusted in Christ. Oh, Father, help us to take the responsibility that's laid before us seriously and walk with our God the way we should. Continue to watch over us as we leave today. We ask this in Jesus' name.